Welcome to Teach Musically, the Studio Music Teacher's Guide to Business and Pedagogy Solutions. My name is Michelle. And I'm Leanne. Today's podcast is all about memorization, a feat that most musicians will struggle with at some point. As if performing wasn't challenging enough, memorizing adds on another dimension of stress and requires a whole other set of skills and practice rituals. Mastering memorization takes years of practice and study. Why do we memorize music in the first place? For those of you who don't know who to blame for this expectation, you can look to Franz Liszt and Clara Schumann. Before the Romantic era and the rise of the virtuoso performer, memorization was not at all an expectation. This was mainly because music was produced quickly and expected to be performed soon after. Audiences demanded to hear new music performed often, so there was just no time for memorization. Memorizing music used to be seen as arrogant and a way of taking the focus away from the composer and onto the performer themselves. But all of that changed when Franz Liszt entered the scene, the rock star of the Romantic era. He brought virtuosity to popularity and shifted the focus of audiences from the composer to the performer. Music became more flashy and complex. Liszt wanted to show that he could go above and beyond what any performer had done before, and part of that included playing from memory. This was seen as a virtuosic task in and of itself. And yet somehow, this trend became tradition and stuck around. Thanks a lot, List. Now performers everywhere must suffer and continue to rack their brains for ways to make the notes stick. It is so interesting that one person can change such a big part of how we perform. And what was once regarded as a virtuosic skill is now an expectation for all performers. Yes, and what's also interesting, or maybe even a bit of a contradiction, is that we perform earlier music by memory, Bach, Scarlatti, Beethoven, Mozart, but when those composers were alive, this was not common practice. That's a good point. I think so many teachers continue to work on memorization with students because of this tradition, and also because it's a requirement for most exams and competitions. Yes, it's something I've been reflecting on recently. When I first graduated from university and started teaching, I was very much still in the classical and traditional mindset of music learning. I would have two recitals a year for my students, and I decided that my rule would be to make it mandatory for them to play from memory. I wasn't doing this to be mean, but more so because I struggled so much with memorization in university. I think part of the reason that I struggled was because my childhood teacher was not so strict about memorization, so I just didn't get that training and experience. I can relate to you, as this was also the case with my early music education. If it wasn't for exams or recitals, there weren't many valuable opportunities to work on memorizing, let alone being taught how to in an efficient and effective manner that builds confidence. So now I'm a little bit torn. I want my students to start memorizing from a young age because it'll gradually build up that skill. But at the same time, I don't want to cause them extra stress for students that might be taking a more recreational approach. You're right. It is a really difficult balance that is also dependent on the student. I find that if some students who don't read well resort to memorizing, while those who do read well might struggle with memory. Nurturing both of these skills in a holistic way can be challenging. We don't have it easy as teachers. I think both memory and reading skills those can be taught in bite-sized pieces to students of all ages by using strategies like pattern recognition, oral skills, and managing the overwhelm. After having experienced your journey with music and memory, what do you do now with your students in your studio? Now I try to push my more motivated students to memorize, but I mean, who am I to judge how my students will develop over the next five to 10 years? I look at myself, for example, as a kid, I took piano lessons consistently, but I was never a very serious student. My teacher probably would not have predicted that I would pursue a career in music. 
Had she known that, I'm sure her approach might have been more strict and better prepare me. But then at the same time, if she had been more strict, would I have even developed a love for music? Who knows? It's all really complicated. It is really complicated. Everything is so interconnected. And it's a lot to handle, and teachers are not prophets. So I think it's good to remember that while we should set up our students with a strong foundation, our best is enough. We can't be responsible for everything in a student's musical journey, but we can be their guide and support. We can show them strategies that set them up for success and encourage them, but ultimately, they will have to walk that path. So I often inquire about the student's goals, and I do my best to get them there. If they're a recreational student with little interest in music, then I'm not going to push for memorizing if it will kill their enjoyment. But if I do have a serious student, then it's time to bring out the big tool so that they will feel confident performing and don't develop a fear of memory lapses. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think that's a good approach. Now, when we were talking about this podcast, I started reflecting on all my embarrassing moments, and there's so many of them. So let's share. You can go first. Tell me, make me feel better. Tell me one embarrassing story. I have to go first? (laughs) Okay, so um, this one's probably the one I'm most ashamed about. I can't remember if it was my first master recitals or my second master recital, but I was playing a Mozart sonata and I was in the first movement getting to the end and before I knew it, like four bars into the end, I just completely blinked. I couldn't hear the tune. I didn't know what key I was in, no muscle memory, nothing, but it was happening as I was like finishing off the last bar before the last four and I couldn't even like improvise my way out. So I just somehow like started the second movement and i just like didn't end the first movement at all that's fine it's best to just move on i don't think that's fine that's scary no it is scary <laughs> but at least like i hate when people go back and try to do it and then as the audience member you're just re-watching that same memory lap <laughs> so good for you just just abandon it you're done and move on tell me what is your scary memory lapse okay okay well i I've, I've been reflecting and i thought of three because one is like from my childhood one is from like the middle and one is from like the master's level i'm loving the story time yes so childhood one you know typical story i did a competition just the local town competition and of course i forgot my whole piece i cried you know <laughs> we've all been there yeah okay, that was the start the first traumatic experience and then i went to university and for our listeners who don't know michelle and i went to the same university and we studied under the same teacher. So maybe you remember this. I don't know if you were there or not. But I played a Bach Symphonia, I think. And I forgot the whole thing. It was really embarrassing. And then, you know, it was in first year. So I thought, it's okay. You know, people are going to forget. And then fast forward to I'm in fourth year. And I'm talking with my now roommate. And I was like, oh, telling her, oh, yes. In first year, I had this really embarrassing memory lapse, and, and I couldn't believe it. And she's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. I was in the audience. No. And I was like, well, well great. I thought, <laughs> thought everyone will forget. Nope, they remembered. And then my most frustrating one was in my second year master's getting ready for my recital. It's like two weeks away, and I'm doing a run-through for my whole class. And I just blank again. On the Beethoven Opus 110. Mm -hmm. You know that one. And I got so frustrated that I just like stormed out crying. And I like went and cried in the bathroom. And it was really sad. (laughs) That that is really, really sad and traumatic. Speaking of your um, playing in front of the whole class, I have this other one that came back into my brain. Um, I was a TA for sight singing and my recital was coming up. So I was doing, I was leading one of my sight singing classes and... 
they saw my posters about me having a recital and they're like oh why don't you go and play something you know test one of your pieces and I was like okay great I'm gonna test um one of my Schumann pieces and so I started playing and it was like three bars in I just literally forgot it all (laughs) in front of all of my students I was like I can't believe this is happening like I'm supposed to be a role model because at this point I'm masters and they're they're undergrads so that was like the most embarrassing thing that is pretty embarrassing it is but I'm so glad that there was one student who was very very encouraging and like they're like it's okay don't worry and they applause and they just like let that event pass so did you try it again did you play it again no i just like guys just bailed after three (laughs) i i think i bailed and then i was like okay class is over bye because it was near the end of class anyways i was like so embarrassed i can't believe that happened well enough of this memory lane stuff and uh reliving our traumas do you think that going through these traumatic experiences and moments of memory lapse that you would want to start changing the expectations within your own studio You know, I would really love to, and I think the pandemic has already helped me to make that shift. When I was teaching online during the first part of the pandemic, I noticed the students were quite stressed and worn out from all the online learning. So I relaxed my teaching a lot because I just wanted them to continue to improve, even if it was a little bit of a slower rate. So for our recitals during the pandemic, I didn't say anything about memory. If they wanted to play from memory, fine, but I didn't force it. And you know what? It really didn't make any difference in terms of the success of the recital. I think that I was putting more pressure on myself to get students to play from memory because that was the expectation that had always been put on me. With this tradition of memorization, I would imagine it to be difficult to move away from, though, because it's an acquirement for exams and competitions. It's true. I think for now it continues to be kind of a necessary evil. So why don't we talk about some of our go-to strategies for memorizing? This first one is specific to pianists. Um, I think we need to be able to play from memory hands separately. A lot of piano music we know has the right hand melody and the left hand accompaniment. Often we rely on our ear to help us guide the right hand, which isn't too hard since it's the melodic line. But a lot of times if you ask your student to play their left hand alone, they cannot do that. And often when I hear memory slips or I see candidates in exams have memory slips, it's caused by their left hand. So. Train your students to play from memory hands separate. Yes, and that actually ties in well with doing some harmonic analysis. Left-hand accompaniments can feel like random mishmash of notes if you don't have an understanding of the structure or harmonic progression. This is why it's so important to have a holistic approach to learning music that includes theory and technique. The technique gives us the physical skill and the theory gives us the understanding of the chords. And then you can tie all this together to help aid with the memory. Exactly, and I like to do this right from the beginner level. I ask them, can you find a G chord? Can you find a scale in the music? Things like that. Then as they get older and more advanced, we analyze the left-hand chords. Usually after analyzing, I'll ask them, isn't that so much easier to remember now that you know the chords? And they always tell me yes. Going back to what you said earlier, often we rely too heavily on our ears to guide us through memory. It's important that we train each different sense individually. We often rely heavily on our ear and our muscle memory. So while the memory by ear is important and while muscle memory can help us, it's not always enough. A tip I learned from one of my teachers in university is trying to play the right hand melody with one finger. Ooh, that's a good one. And you'd be surprised by how much we're actually relying on our muscle memory, even for the melody. It really forces you to know each note really well. And I like what you said about training all the different senses. This is great to explore since everyone kind of favors a different sense when they're learning. Exactly, and a lot of us are visual learners. So something I like to do to help with the visual memory is to 
color in my music. Sometimes I find it easier when I color in sections that in my mental memory of my visual map, it's just easier to see what those sections are. So for example, instead of writing just the words A section, I might color in the A section in red, and it's just easier for my brain to see where I am. Especially since I'm the type to really mark up my score and it's just like, you can't read anything afterwards. And for me, sometimes those colors will represent certain keys or certain tonal colors to serve as reminders. I love that. And a great way to start with this habit with young kids is simply by circling patterns they see in the music. They can use one color for one theme and a different for another theme or even for rhythmic patterns. The possibilities are pretty endless and most kids really enjoy circling their music and using different colors. Yeah, my kids really enjoy that. It's like their favorite part. It's sometimes my lessons are more like coloring classes than actual music lessons. (laughs) So if your student is more of a visual learner, you can also have them focus on their hand shape and their hand positions as well. Some students, especially those who are really good readers, rarely look and process how their hands actually look on the keys. So when they do look at their hands, they get really disoriented and sometimes that causes a memory lapse. Sometimes it's really revelatory for students when they realize the look of a scale on a keyboard or what their handshake looks in relation to the keys really helps them to free up their mental load. That's a good one and also pretty challenging. It actually reminds me of some of the most challenging memory work I've done. Once I played at a festival and of course as usual I had memory slip, I was playing the Beethoven Opus 110, a doozy with the two fugues, and after I had forgotten everything, Um, During the feedback, the adjudicator suggested that to help with my memory, I should actually sit down and scribe the piece from memory. Did you do that note for note? Yes. And I was like, this is going to take forever. (laughs) And I thought it would be impossible. And it was. It did take forever. But I have to say it was actually quite eye-opening and made me realize that I don't really know most of the notes that well. Um, I think it would be impossible to do this for the entire sonata, but I did use it for like some of the trickier spots within the fugues. So it actually did help a lot. I really admire you for trying to do such a very overwhelming task because I've also received that advice and I was like, no, this is too much. Oh, you didn't do it? <laughs> no, no, I definitely did not, which so I guess I should. <laughs> yeah. So I think this also ties in really well with the idea of mental practice, which is also a great option when you don't have access to a practice room. Yeah, and mental practice makes a lot of sense because the memory is happening in our brains, so we don't necessarily need our instrument to work on this. Exactly. Mental practice or mental visualization or mental rehearsal is a powerful tool that athletes use to improve their skill, and it translates perfectly over to musicians. The idea is that you want to imagine yourself playing your music as clearly as you can, and the more rich it is, the better. So you want to imagine what it looks like to see your hands on the keys. Imagine how it feels to touch the keys or how your arms feel when you play. Imagine exactly the sound that you want. By doing this, your brain still builds and reinforces the very same neural pathways that you would if you were really practicing. It also makes it very clear where you do and do not know your music well enough. I hear that a lot of professionals don't feel confident performing until they can play the entire piece, note for note, in their mind. It is a wonderful and powerful tool to have in your toolbox. So no excuse if you can't find a practice room, I guess. All right, so when you're in the process of memorizing your music, it's so important to test out your memory. The best way to do this, of course, is to play for others or play under pressure in some way. For some, this could be playing for a friend or family member. For others, even recording yourself can be enough to get you feeling a little bit nervous. It really is so valuable to do as many run-throughs as you can. It can reveal your weak spots and places you need to work through a little more carefully. Exactly. 
But even if you do all this preparation, there will be a time in every musician's life where their mind still goes blank. That passage you've never had any trouble with will just escape your brain, just like Michelle told us earlier. <laughs> there, there will be those times where our brains will just fail us. So the best thing we can do in these situations is to learn how to recover. Because, you know, we're going to have memory lapses, but what's more important is how well you handle the mishap. And so ideally, we want to avoid returning to the beginning of the piece, because what a horrible feeling it would be to have to repeat that passage you have just forgotten, and then you loop back to the beginning, and you hope for the best. I know, it's really painful to watch someone go through this as well. The poor performer has a huge memory lapse, restarts, and they're just approaching that section and you just feel so nervous for them and boom, there it is again. They forget again. (laughs) And like I said earlier, in all my exams, I see this all the time. So teachers, you have to work on this. The best thing to do, I think, is just skip ahead. Just go to the next section, just abandon it. And that's why it's important to train our students to have starting places in the music so that they can continue forward no matter what happens. Yes, it's really important to go through the piece and pick out different logical places to start. Your students should be able to pick up the piece from any of these spots. And if all else fails, make sure you have a memory spot at the very end of the piece so you can just finish the piece. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, this discussion has brought up so many interesting and painful memories. It's crazy just to see how much time and effort we've put towards memorizing. So we hope you found this podcast helpful. Do you have any memorization tips to share? Let us know. Feel free to share your embarrassing moments of memory lapses as well. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe for more great podcasts. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and online at teachmusically.com. Until next time, happy teaching and memorizing.